I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. They were called the Texas 11, and they are, in many ways, the beginning of the story that ended this week with the deadly collapse of the state's electrical grid. In the 2002 midterm elections, Texas Republicans finally gained full control of the state's government. The party immediately moved to redraw congressional and state legislative lines to gerrymander Democrats into oblivion. But to approve the redistricting, the state Senate needed a quorum, a quorum that 11 Democrats could deny by simply not showing up. And so the Texas 11 were born. Also known, a bit ridiculously, as the Killer D's, These 11 state senators fled to New Mexico and Oklahoma out of the reach of the Texas Rangers. The story became grist for late-night comedians. Here's Stephen Colbert, then on The Daily Show. Runaways. They're a problem all across the nation, and New Mexico is no exception. One such runaway, who we'll call Rodney, came here from Texas. His story will break your heart. Rodney, why did you run away? I'm here as a part of an effort to uh, break a legislative quorum in the Texas legislature. Yes, like so many runaways, Rodney is here to break a legislative quorum in the Texas legislature. Over that summer, they successfully killed a special legislative session aimed at redistricting. But in the fall, one of the Democrats eventually caved and returned to Austin. In 2002, Democrats had controlled 17 of 30 congressional districts. Two years later, with the state's population growing, Texas had 32 members of Congress, but Democrats controlled just 11 seats. They had gone from a majority to deep in the minority overnight, and that's where they would remain over the next 20 years as Republicans used their unchecked authority over the state to launch an experiment in radical deregulation. They stripped the government down to the boards and then ripped out the boards and sold them for scrap. Here's how Beto O'Rourke described today's Republican Party to me over the phone this week. You have people running the government in Texas who are in the highest positions of public trust who just fundamentally do not believe in government. Republicans, though, have found the culprit. It's the Green New Deal. Is green energy to blame for the power outages in Texas? Joe Biden and Democrats better think twice about unleashing the Green New Deal on the whole country. Just take a look at what's happening in Texas. Unbeknownst to most people, the Green New Deal came to Texas. The power grid in the state became totally reliant on windmills. Then it got cold and the windmills broke. We got massive amount of wind farms out in West Texas that are frozen up. All of that wind energy was lost. Wind turbines are frozen. Wind turbines froze. Wind turbines are frozen solid. Because that's what happens in the Green New Deal. This is a clash between green dreams and deep freeze reality. The same energy policies that have wrecked Texas this week are going nationwide. They're coming to your state. Is this what America would look like under the Green New Deal? This is where the weather meets the Green New Deal. This is where you pay the price for the climate dreams of the coastal elites. Okay, but back to reality. It wasn't as if Texas didn't know cold winters are possible. 
1989, a cold snap crashed below zero and caused major power outages. In 2011, it happened again. The freeze caused rolling power blackouts throughout Texas, including Dallas. There were rolling blackouts forced upon that city because the power plants just stopped working. You knew trouble was around the corner, especially at intersections with blacked out traffic lights. The Super Bowl is in Dallas on Sunday, but it's very cold. It's so cold there are power outages and rolling blackouts all over Texas. In fact, they're having to import power from Mexico. <laughs> when Mexico has to give us electricity, that's when we know we're in trouble. Experts warned that the state's energy system needed major upgrades. Instead, as we'll talk about later in the show with Varun Rai, director of the University of Texas's Energy Institute, deregulation set up incentives for many firms to ignore infrastructure investments. They gambled it wouldn't be their problem. And so millions remain out of power and access to water is touch and go. It might seem crass to talk about the political repercussions of this crisis while it's still unfolding, but politics got us into this mess and only politics is going to get us out. We'll talk with former congressional candidate Mike Siegel, who last appeared on the show in November to talk about how this is playing politically. But first, I reached out to Beto O'Rourke, who has been hammering Governor Greg Abbott, and he's been running a massive phone banking operation to reach out to stranded, freezing, and starving seniors across the state to see how they can be helped. O'Rourke's response to the crisis has fueled speculation that he's running for governor in 2022 against Abbott. He was asked about that at the end of January by a local radio station, KLAQ in El Paso. So according to the uh, Texas Democratic Party chairman, Gil Hinoso, uh, he says, Beto, you are uh, thinking about a challenge to Governor Greg Abbott in 2022. I don't expect you to make any kind of announcement on a regional radio show, but the story here says O'Rourke could not be reached for comment. And I was thinking, oh, well, I've reached him. Maybe he'll comment to us. <laughs> <laughs> You've got my Skype number now. So. Yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, yeah, you know what? I, it, it's something I'm going to think about. Abbott responded by saying Beto's promise as a presidential candidate to take assault weapons away from their owners wouldn't, quote, sell well in Texas. If O'Rourke does run, he'll make the election a referendum on Republican rule. Here's how he put it to me on Thursday. It's not just the, the current disaster with this severe cold snap in Texas and the power blackouts that affected millions and the boil water notice that 7 million Texans are, are living under right now because of the radical deregulation, the failure to require power generators to weatherize their facilities or to connect to the national grid so we could draw down power when we need it. It's not just that, it's, it's also the response to COVID that has claimed the lives of more than 40,000 of my fellow Texans. This bungled COVID vaccine rollout in Texas where they literally asked each of the 254 counties of Texas to figure it out on their own. The absolute rejection of science and facts and truth when it comes to climate and other extraordinarily important emergencies that we face. And we're also the state that is obviously on the front lines of this. You look at Hurricane Harvey in 2017, you look at the severe droughts that we face, the severe winter weather storms that are absolutely unprecedented. This is not just our future, this is happening right now. This is the cost of 20 years of absolute Republican control, unbroken in Texas at literally every significant level of government. And it's the consequence of having people who don't believe in government running the government. That's what we're up against. 
To dig deeper into the state's politics, we're joined by civil rights attorney Mike Siegel, who ran for Congress in Texas in 2020. He last appeared on the November episode of Deconstructed titled, What Happened? Mike Siegel, thank you so much for joining us again on Deconstructed. Thank you, Ryan. So glad to be with you. No, wish it were under better circumstances, but we we got a, actually a ton of uh, feedback, a positive feedback from your your last interview. People really found the story of your congressional race to be quite elucidating in in the in the wake of November's election. Um, what have you been up to since? Well, recovering, frankly. You know, I spent three years of my life running for Congress here in Texas uh, in 2018 and again in 2020, and. Uh, you know, I have a lot of uh, things to tend to after all that was done, you know, with my family, mm-hmm. my house, my health, uh, my mental and physical health. But um, truthfully, you know, last month or so, I've been really picking up and getting back on my feet and focusing on what needs to be done here in Texas. You know, what kind of infrastructure do we need to put in place to enable Texas, for example, in 2028 to deliver our electoral college votes for Democratic nominee for president, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. You know, to me, <laughs> there you go. to me, that's the long game, right? And, and we definitely want to follow in the footsteps of what folks have done in places like Arizona and Georgia, and not just blow all of our money on campaigns where you spend that money on TV and ads and mail pieces and, and don't actually build the base. I've been in, involved in conversations with people like Julie Oliver, uh, a fellow Texas progressive, and and we've got some things in the works where we basically want to raise money to knock doors year round. From the looks of things, we're going to be knocking doors and talking to people about electric deregulation in Texas <laughs> and, how, yes. and how Texas Republicans have sold us out by letting big oil and big gas control our electric grid to the detriment of so many Texans. So how are you personally? How, how long have you had power restored? Well, thank you for asking, Ryan. And, and definitely right now, my love and solidarity is with all the people right now who don't have electricity, who don't have housing, who are vulnerable in all of these different ways. I got my power back about three in the morning today. So we were out of power in our home for about 48 hours. By the end, it was less than 40 degrees inside the house. And it was pretty rough. I have two kids, five and eight years old, and kind of a small older house that doesn't have good insulation. But we did, you know, on the bright side, because a lot of folks have it worse. It's like we had gas, so we had a stovetop. You know, hmm. we had running water. People are having all sorts of broken water lines. And my wife has a business, uh, a veterinary business, where we're able to charge up our phones. So, you know, we had some good things going on uh, for as rough as it has been. What are people doing who've uh, been without water for so long? Some folks are filling their bathtubs. I mean, if they got word soon enough, you know, I... I my friends are, are taking snow from outside and using it to flush their toilet. Oh, wow. Some people are fleeing their homes. You know, for example, in Austin, it's been about 200,000 households without electricity. So it's about half the city. So a lot of people have gone to their friends or neighbors or, or loved ones who have electricity to stay there, which, of course, is not ideal during a COVID pandemic. But But there's all sorts of survival strategies going on right now. I've heard that there are things called warming centers where like entire communities are gathering, which like, like you said, does not, you know, it, it might be the best of all the possible options, but it's certainly not ideal in a pandemic. Is that a real thing? Is that something that's happening? Yes. For example, in Austin, uh, some of the school campuses have been opened as warming centers, different public facilities. And I, I've seen different things. Some of these things are open overnight. Some of them close at like, for example, 9 p.m., which is not ideal. But basically a place where you can get warm, you can charge up your electronics. And then I guess even if it closes at nine o'clock, you can just go home and get under the covers and, and wait it out till the morning. 
Have they suggested that you're in the clear or are you worried that you could lose power again at any moment? No, we could certainly lose power at any moment. It just seems some sort of freak of happenstance that we got power back because basically overnight, maybe 10,000 households were added back to power. Hmm. And unfortunately, uh, we, you know, we have an ice rainstorm going on right now. They're predicting that some people are going to lose power again. Apparently, we're not out of the woods. There, there's at least another day or two of this crisis. How is this humanitarian crisis unfolding politically down there? On, on the national level, on Fox News and elsewhere, you see all these Republicans just preposterously and so confidently blaming the Green New Deal for, for the failure of, the, of Texas's grid. Is, is that a theme that's being taken seriously in, in Texas? Not among the media or local leaders, but certainly, you know, Abbott knows what he's doing. This is a catastrophic failure of Republican governance, you know, going back 20 years and more when they supported deregulation, allowing for an electrical system where it's basically on-demand spot bidding. You know, it's like uh, these energy providers are constantly buying electricity on the market. And so the the price goes up 10,000%. And that's just you know, business as usual in Texas. 10 years ago, we had a major freeze where the recommendation that came out of that was we need to weatherize our grid, our facilities, uh, and they never followed through on that. And so it's a catastrophic failure of governance. I mean, these natural gas facilities in particular, you have frozen wells, frozen lines. That's a big part of our electrical generation capacity in Texas, and that's failed. You know, most of our reserve energy that's supposed to get us through moments like this didn't come online. And and that's, you know, frozen coal piles, non-working gas facilities and the rest. And so they would never look at themselves in the mirror. You know, Greg Abbott would never admit failure. And he knows that a huge political repercussion is coming his way very shortly. And so they tried to get ahead of it by going on Fox News and, and Sinclair Broadcasting and telling this lie that the Green New Deal is the problem, that wind energy is the problem. Even though wind energy actually met it's expected demand for this week, and it's gas and coal that have really failed. Does it have any chance of succeeding? You see a lot of cynicism among a national audience that says, look, these rubes in Texas, they'll fall for this. They'll, they'll be happy to blame AOC for their lights going out. But I just can't see people being quite that dumb. They, they know who runs Texas, and they know it's not AOC. I agree that the conditions are there for a dramatic political shift in Texas. I mean, as someone who considers myself a political actor, I mean, this is this is our moment, right? We need to take what's happened, how big oil and big gas have been enormously profiting from uh, an electrical grid that's not resilient, that's not built to sustain crises like this, where they basically gambled with our lives to increase their profits. We need to take this moment and use it for political change, but it's not going to happen just by proving that they're lying. We can't just get on Twitter, issue press releases and say, mm-hmm. oh, Abbott's lying. You know, what a liar. He should lose. You know, that's not how it's going to happen, right? So it's going to be on us after we thaw out uh, as Democrats, as progressives, to really organize with this moment. Similar to the January 6th uh, insurrection, we need to organize based on what happened there and how Texas Republicans are complicit. This is a perfect moment for populism, right? Uh, that it's not about left mm-hmm. versus right. It's about bottom versus top. And while Governor Abbott has had perfect electricity in his mansion throughout this crisis, the rest of us have been freezing, crashing on roadways, uh, having our medical equipment fail for lack of electricity. You know, go on down the line. 
all of these crises, the most disadvantaged are the ones who hit who are hurt first. But we need to go out and, and organize uh, based on what's happening right now to change the politics in Texas. So, Mike, there's a really interesting kind of historical rhyme almost to this when you talk about Texas populism. I mean, the rural electrification was sort of the kind of root of the original Texas populism. Do, is is that is that going to resonate with people? Because now you you now you have the the party that's in leadership saying you're kind of on your own and sorry, this thing that was delivered 100 years ago isn't actually going to work anymore. No, I agree. I mean, certainly the Republicans have always preached, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And, and that meant, you know, don't expect support getting a job or going to college. But at, at a certain fundamental level, people do expect something from government. You know, that maybe they expect police, they expect roads, and I think they expect electricity, you know, maybe not high speed internet, although I think that should be a fundamental right as well. But electricity is so fundamental, it kind of like a sewage, you know, that, that you expect that from government. And, and I agree that, that this is certainly a moment to awaken people. And I think that if the right candidates run in 22 statewide, you know, our governor race is coming up, our lieutenant governor, our attorney general races are coming up. You know, Beto O'Rourke has said he's running, maybe some others will jump in. I think this is the perfect thing to organize on. It's, it's the complete bankruptcy of a conservative ideology. You know, the whole starve the beast thought process, we're going to mm-hmm. uh, shrink government down to the size of a thimble and drown it in a bathtub. People realize, well, if it's that small, then I'm going to die too, right? How does deregulation play into the, the catastrophic failure? Is there a link between deregulation and the lack of investment into the infrastructure? Yes. And uh, to be clear, I'm no expert in ERCOT and the Public Utilities Commission. I, I was a city attorney in Austin and did a couple cases on behalf of our municipal energy company, uh, Austin Energy. But uh, I'll admit my eyes glazed over whenever the word ERCOT came up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but big picture, you know, I think a great example is in 2011, we had a big freeze and, and some people died. And there were a lot of recriminations and promises to weatherize these facilities that weren't able to come online. And that's the key. You know, uh, Texas with this uh, deregulation, basically all the energy providers, it's up to them on how to do business. And they just they sell their energy to the grid and then other people buy it from the grid. And unfortunately, it's a system that operates on the idea that basically the lower the supply, the higher the profit. So there's very little margin for error. Hmm. And so what that means is these energy providers, they make tons of money in the peak demand periods of the summer after our 80th day in a row of 100 degrees in central Texas. They're selling their energy at spot prices of I don't know, $9,000 per per watt, you know, measurement and, and where it's normally it's $40. Mm-hmm. And so they build it around the, like maximizing these moments of peak demand and low supply. And so unfortunately there's just these perverse incentives throughout the system. But then they also know that there's these structural problems like so for example, they know that weatherization, that's going to be a key word in Texas uh, in the in the months ahead. These natural gas energy facilities, these coal facilities we're not properly weatherized. So these different intake valves freeze. Uh, the wells themselves do not operate. Just all the nuts and bolts of how, you know, these raw materials get converted into electri- electricity, they can't survive this temperature. And there were all these recommendations that, that they need to weatherize the facilities. It would require an investment that would decrease their marginal profit, but that's what is necessary to save lives. And unfortunately, because we're not treating electricity as a public good, 
they were able to make these decisions to not weatherize. And there was very little oversight by Texas regulatory commissions that are captured by big oil. And so therefore, 10 years later, we're in an even worse predicament where who knows how many people have died and there's all these other casualties. Right. And instead, they act like there's there's something inherent to a windmill that it will freeze when, when of course, everybody knows, look, there's, there's windmills in Alaska, there's windmills in Canada, there's windmills in Northern Europe. It gets cold there too, but they've invested and planned ahead for that. And so the windmills continue to function. Mike, good luck the rest of this week and next. And thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Ryan. Appreciate everything you do. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. That was Mike Siegel. Now, to talk in more detail about what exactly is going on in Texas right now and why its power grid collapsed so spectacularly, I'm joined by Varun Rai. Rai is a professor in the LBJ School of Public Affairs and the director of the Energy Institute at the University of Texas at Austin. He also directs the Energy Systems Transformation Research Group. From 2013 to 2015, he served as a commissioner for the electric utility Austin Energy. So he knows a little bit about the Texas energy grid. Professor Rai, welcome to Deconstructed. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so what has the last week been like uh, for you? Uh, it's It's been uh, incredible to say the least. Uh, I live in Austin, and even before the major weather conditions hit broadly in Texas, in Austin we had icing weather on Thursday, and we already had power losses uh, in many parts of Austin starting Thursday. And so we, in the neighborhood we live in, we have been uh, out of power since Thursday. So that's almost a week now. As of this morning, we have gotten power back, but now water is out. And and this is widespread. This is not just, you know, me or here uh, or just even for Austin, right? Uh, it's it's much mm-hmm. more widespread. Were you able to cook? Did, did you have an electric stove? And like, what was the temperature like in your house after a few days of this? Yeah, it went down to uh, the 30s uh, in, inside the house. Uh, outside... Jeez. Yeah, outside, without the wind chill, the temperatures were about 10 Fahrenheit. And then with wind chill, it went to minus 10 Fahrenheit. Uh, inside, it went into the 30s. And we we have an electric cook stove, so but we do have gas uh, fireplace and gas heating. Of course, the gas heating doesn't work because you need electricity for the controllers and for the uh, mm-hmm. fan. But so we were burning wood. I was I was fortunate to have uh, gotten a bunch of food just a few days ago in preparation, partly. 
And so that came in very handy. So we were we were using so we in the gas fireplace we were burning wood to stay warm as well as we actually literally cooked food on in the fireplace for the last sixty days. Literally, there is no delivery. Nobody is delivering, right. obviously. Right. Can you talk a little bit about you know how we how we got here? I mean, what's fascinating is that you know rural electrification was one of Texas's kind of great populist achievements, and it was more recent than people remember. You know, we're talking 1930s, 40s, 50s that the state was getting wired up. How did the state go from you know populist control of and pride in its electrical system to where we are today? What was the kind of hinge point that, when, when that pivoted? Great question. I think, you know, the, the pride in the Texas energy and electricity system still still mm-hmm. exists. Uh, you know, right before right. A, a week or so, uh, now it's going to get get very hard. Uh, and you know, it's it's a system where certainly tr- transparency and and openness in terms of opportunities for market participants to come in and play. And also, you know, one of the big changes that happened in this market was roughly two decades ago when the market was deregulated, and a few years later, things moved to what is known as an energy-only market where power plant generators get payback only for what the price of electricity is on the on the market and not necessarily for for capacity or standing by the side waiting to be called right so there's a separation between how the market is designed and it it all had been working fine but in events like this it just becomes very difficult right a lot of people have been talking about 2011 the the cold snap that came and the recommendations that followed that, that said that, look, this the system needs upgrades to its infrastructure, or the next time there's a cold snap like this, you're, you're going to have a you're going to have a catastrophe. Is there something about the deregulated system that just disincentivizes investing in the in in the infrastructure? Was it a political choice made by Republicans, and it's not totally to blame on the deregulated system. As somebody who's participated in this, but also studied it so extensively, you know, what is it about this system that led us to a place where it was uh, underinvested in? Great question. It's a very complex question, Ryan. Uh, I'll try to break it up. As I mentioned earlier, as a generator, you will make your revenues by selling electricity onto the market. And so, you know, part of the idea of this market design is you know, because you're going to make money that way and because typically you would expect market prices to go up higher in conditions like this, you would have that incentive to keep running anyway. Because, you know, if you are not maintaining, then you would not be able to serve to the market and hence you will not be able to make money just when it is most profitable potentially to make the money. Mm -hmm. So there are actually incentives built into this type of design you know, things are very competitive, right? And that was one of the primary ideas that, you know, doing that will bring prices down. Right. Uh, and so there's a lot of competition. And, you know, that's one of the things that, you know, Texas thrives on. And, you know, there are all sorts of great things that come out of competition, right? Not just in energy. And so to the extent you are investing in your own infrastructure and you that costs you money, and then, you know, that's a trade-off for you as, a, as an individual generator, mm-hmm. your own bet as to how likely it might be for the system price to go up that your investment will actually pay, pay out. If not, then your cost of production will be higher, but you will not be making up, up the money because, you know, the system price is not expected to go up much higher. 
And so, you know, it, it, it's understandable why for an individual generator, the call might be, hey, it's not worth going all the way. Right. And so it's, it seems like on the question of incentives for spending on infrastructure upgrades, you have the collective action problem that you right. talked about, because it, it might be on the, it might be smarter for each individual business. And there's so many of them to say, you know what, let's roll the dice and, and you know, not invest and hope that it doesn't hit peak. And, you know, so we can keep our prices the lowest. I wonder if you have the same collective action problem when it comes to transparency around how robustly you are actually following, you know, the guidelines that the state is putting out that ERCOT is putting out because you might have an incentive to just what, what, what they call in the army, just pencil whip it. Um, say, Hey, did you, you know, did you check all of these boxes? Mm -hmm. Did you, did you do all of this work? Mm -hmm. And, and you take your pencil out and you check the box and you say, yes, sure. Mm -hmm. We did that. Mm -hmm. Um, because you're already gambling that there aren't going to be, you Mm -hmm. know, severe events. Mm -hmm. You know, you gambled with your investment that there won't be severe events. So if there are severe events, you're screwed uh, already on the front end. So you might as well just um, kind of fudge fudge your records a little bit since, you know, you're you're an LLC that's probably going to go under in, in the event of, uh, of some major event. Do you think that that kind of dynamic could be playing in here? It is totally, it is certainly possible is it real is what will need to be investigated and i I believe will be investigated Mm -hmm. one one thing to keep in mind right you know we there are all range of players right from all the way from you know everybody has to go through you know there are financial requirements there are you know regulatory requirements so it's not easy to set up to be a generator or a supplier right so there are all sorts of other things that do happen so Mm -hmm. you know it's not that simple right and also there are other safety aspects that also come into play. So, you know, it's, it's hard for me to imagine that there is, you know, wide scale, complete uh, neglect. I don't think, you know, that that happens. You know, we function pretty well in tough conditions, you know, you know, even in our winter, sometimes get tough and, and we do well. Summers are very tough in Texas. We have done very well, even even if nervously every year. But, you know, we have we have continued to do so. But going back to your question on collective action on transparency, I think, that is also a possible. Mm-hmm. That is also a possibility. So you know, early on, you started seeing Fox News and other right-wing outlets start putting up pictures of frozen windmills and saying, "See, you know, we told you, you go into renewables, and this is what's going to happen." You know, what, 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 what's your reaction to that argument? Though some of those pictures were probably true, uh, windmills can freeze. And some of them can stop operating. And actually, that some of that actually happened in this market as well. That's one question. If the question is, how much of what we are seeing right now is because of, you know, renewable energy generation, I mean, that already has gotten answered. In our peak, as I mentioned, there are about 35 to 45 gigawatt of outages. And a few gigawatts of that were wind because that is, that is the capacity that was, that was going to be available. And the majority of that, up, up, up to about 30 gigawatts of that, was outages in natural gas-based generation, both because of power plant generation and some because of, you know, gas supply limitations. Right. So it's just not, not true to say that it had any demonstrable kind of large-scale effect. Not in the, in the full-scale problem that we are seeing. Right. Uh, lastly, what do you think needs to be done? Uh, to make sure that 
not necessarily this doesn't happen again, but when you get a crisis like this again, that it's it's mitigated to a degree where you might have a few thousand people who lose power for a few hours, but you don't have millions of people, you know, freezing and starving. Great question, Ryan. There are there are a couple of things that are that are very basic and essential. One is we talked a lot about that is winterization of our infrastructure. This has been known. How well are we doing that? That is the lowest hanging fruit here. Let's push the pedal as far as we can uh, there. Number one, that's, that's, that's absolutely true. Number two is there is a flip side to this. Uh, we talked mostly about supply. We didn't talk much about demand. Demand soared, hmm. and it soared past what was expected in NARCOT, even in extreme conditions, and, and not these extreme conditions, but whatever those horizons of planning were. And so it exceeded by a few gigawatts of what was planned. So, you know, people don't pay as much attention to uh, demand side, and that includes efficiency and weatherization of your homes and so on. It turns out that in events like this, actually, it's, it's extremely important. How do we increase efficiency of our appliances so that we are not consuming more? That helps not just in these conditions. It helps in, you know, a whole lot of other conditions mm-hmm. and with whole lots of other problems, including with with, you know, bills and with, you know, different types of pollutions. But then it also, especially in events like this, it becomes an extremely critical tool. While the supply side is getting its, its act together, at least people can stay inside for a little bit longer and not die of hypothermia. And so right. so th- that's a very important piece. And the third piece to keep in mind, though, Ryan, is... There are limits to how much we can prove any of this, right? Going beyond, you know, a couple of the things that we talked about, you know, that's a social choice that that we all make. As it's, these are policy choices, right? We can we can, you know, create mm-hmm. all sorts of policies and say, hey, you know, even if we are in a you know month long winter snow spell in Texas, we should be able to supply reliably to all our customers. Yes, you know, that's a policy choice we can make, but it comes at extremely huge cost, right? So you know, where are those boundaries? That's a big discussion we need to have. I mean, what is shocking about this whole thing is how different entities and policymakers and, you know, local utilities and lawmakers are, everybody's really in a hard, tough situation, but pointing fingers fingers to each other. And that just tells you that, you know, in the big scheme of things, yes, this is, this is an extreme event for Texas, but, you know, things like this, you know, happen elsewhere in the world and in elsewhere in the U.S. And, the type of response we are seeing, that is very shocking. The level of uncoordination, mm-hmm. unpreparedness, uh, the sheer lack of coordinated response, that's been very challenging. So you know, now coming back to my, my, my point that it can get very costly. So you know, as, a, as a society, you know, there needs to be a very clear discussion as to you know, what are we looking for. And you know, that gets encoded through, through policy. But obviously, you know, no matter what it is, I can tell you one thing, Ryan. The social choice will not be, yeah, we can accept what we are seeing here for the last week. Absolutely not. All right. Uh, Varun Rai, thank you so much for joining me today. Ryan, thank you so much. This was a great discussion. That was Dr. Varun Rai, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. The show was mixed by Brian Pugh. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. 
If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. If you're subscribed already, please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you soon. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.